Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Well, welcome to the Case Closed Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Clannon. And today, my guest is Michael Haggard of Haggard Law Firm outside of Miami. Um, So welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Michael. Enjoyed to be with you. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little about you, your practice, and whatever you want to share at this moment, and then we'll get into questions. Yeah. So I'm the managing partner of the Haggard Law Firm. We are a, a boutique law firm, eight lawyers, um, in Coral Gables, Florida, which basically is you know a suburb of Miami, and uh, we have a 100% plaintiff's practice. Uh, we represent a number of crime victims. Uh, if you had to say one specialty within the specialty of personal injury and wrongful death, uh, practice with my father forever. My dad uh, was my mentor and my idol, and and he retired uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, and we're, we call ourselves a family firm. My partner Doug McCarran's my brother-in-law, um, but but my other partner's been with us for a long time, and. Uh, you know, we try cases. We really, really work hard. We're, we're out in the community um, and we handle cases that we feel can change society. That's one of the things mm-hmm. we're most proud of is that when we handle a case for a family, not only do we want to get them justice, but we want to change society and maybe corporate behavior that caused the terrible uh, tragedy that brought them to us. And that's something we take a lot of pride in. Wow, that's great. So let's just kind of jump into some questions here. So, um, I know you were a public defender at one time. How did you do the transition from the public defender to becoming a manager or a member, managing partner, sorry, of the Haggard Law Firm? And what motivated your career in personal injury law? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll start maybe with the beginning. And that, again, goes back to my dad. You know, I grew up mm-hmm. uh, sitting at the kitchen table at dinner, hearing about these tragedies that my dad was working on. And these families of folks that maybe were paraplegic or had lost a loved one and how my dad was fighting so hard for them. So I understood from the outset why maybe, you know, he was was late getting home or I couldn't see him on a weekend or something like that. So that always motivated me to to try to be someone that can make a difference in our community and maybe eventually be a trial lawyer. I can tell you, you know, through college, I didn't know what in the world I wanted to do, but I wanted I love public speaking. I love debate. I love leadership. But then again, going through law school, as much as I wanted to be a trial lawyer, you know, I was uh, originally going to be a state attorney. And ironically, uh, I could say this publicly now, I got in a little trouble in law school, which led me to not go to the state attorney, but go to the public defender. And uh, I tell every young lawyer, I would start out at the state attorney or the public defender if you Mm -hmm. want to be a trial lawyer. There's no better place to learn how to try cases and also learn, learn how to be around real people and real mm. problems. And so I absolutely loved it for the two years that I did it. But I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be a, a civil trial lawyer. And so I went out and I worked for uh, another mentor of mine named Don Russo, who had a, a small PI practice handling medical malpractice and catastrophic cases. Learned from him that there is no substitute for being prepared, outworking mm. your opponent, uh, every single case. And eventually... You know, my dad and and, uh, our partner at the time, Bob Parks, who's a legendary trial lawyer across the United States, 
uh, we decided, why are we competing against each other? And, and why don't I join the firm? And, and so I joined the firm. It took a while to be, you know, be a managing partner. I mean, I was a, I was a pit uh, trial lawyer um, out there every day, meeting with witnesses, trying cases, everything mm. like that. And, and uh, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's been a great, great journey. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Wow. Um, can you highlight a key legislative initiative or change you've championed to support crime victims during your legal career? Sure. So, you know, it came about that um, we started handling a lot of crime victim cases with a case involving a man named Sammy Barack. Um, Sammy was unfortunately the victim of a carjacking outside of a, outside of actually a strip club in a strip mall in a small shopping center. And we brought a case uh, for negligent security against that that strip mall. The, the the strip club had no insurance, and he was rendered a quadriplegic, a terrible case. Had to go back to Tunisia. Basically, had the same uh, tracheal tube that he had three years later when the case went to verdict that he had when he left the hospital, which is unheard of. Those need to be changed every six months. So if we didn't win the case, uh, there was no way that uh, Sammy was going to live. And we were able to get a $100 million verdict in that case. And that kind of changed a lot for our firm because then everybody started thinking of us as a crime victim firm. So what we've done with that is is we've lobbied uh, in Congress, in the state for gun restrictions because 90% of our cases involve firearms. Um, We've lobbied for uh, victims' compensation so that victims can pick up their lives immediately. They can't wait like Sammy did three years for a $100 million verdict. That's not going to happen in every case. They have to have restitution. They have to have a victim's compensation early on in their mm-hmm. lives to pick up the pieces. I mean, you know, being a victim of a crime is different than an auto accident. You know, an auto accident, someone right. was really negligent. Although negligence is obviously involved in negligent security cases, uh, and those type of cases, but somebody did something purposefully to you. So something is taken even more deep than a regular case. And so we've been very active, uh, you know, obviously in Congress, but also in the state of Florida, trying to get victims' rights early, the right to participate in the criminal process. And I can't tell you how many times our clients uh, feel outside of the criminal process. And that's that's no offense to law enforcement or mm-hmm. state attorneys across the state and the country, but they're tremendously swamped with 20 homicide cases at one time. Well, our victim is one case. One case only. And uh, so we're involved in a lot of those aspects. Right. So you kind of mentioned the $100 million verdict. So I know you've had a couple of those, maybe three of those, actually. But so this might be a little redundant. Maybe you can touch on the same one or one of the others. But what was a notable case where you secured the $100 million verdict for an individual client? And what challenges did you face on that? You know, fortunate, but at the same time, uh, had the grave responsibility of representing three different individuals that the verdict amounted to over $100 million. And each one of those cases was tremendously, tremendously difficult. You know, people mm-hmm. think, you know, I, I didn't get to choose those cases. The defense chose to try those cases. And one of them, you know, they're all so impactful and made so much differences, not only in the client's lives, but in society. And one of those that I'm still dealing with today in the aspect of safety was Lorenzo Peterson. Lorenzo is a 14-year-old teenage boy from North Miami who on a summer day in July was swimming in an apartment pool where his best friend, Tony Boudreau, lived. 
And they're playing a game that probably all of us have played where you throw the pennies in the pool, they roll down to the drain, and you go get them. And um, the drain cover was missing, had been missing for several months. Mm. So Lorenzo put his arm in there, and his arm got stuck. And his friend Tony tried to pull him out. A number of neighbors jumped in the pool and tried to pull him out. And then a police officer arrived, cut a hose, and tried to deliver oxygen to Lorenzo uh, as Lorenzo became unconscious. Eventually, someone broke into the pool pump room and turned off the pump, and he was free. And he was catastrophically brain damaged. And when I had that case, we, you know, we strategized where we resolved the case with the apartment complex, with the pool service company, knowing that the whole time that the ultimate defendant would be the manufacturer of the pool pump. Because we had found out that this was not the first time this happened. It had happened mm. multiple, multiple, multiple times, hundreds of times throughout the country. And, um, you know, John Edwards, the former senator and presidential uh, candidate, had handled a case outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, about six years before where a young girl was disemboweled on a pool drink. And I went up to their office for three days, went through their file, and discovered just that this evil, this evil didn't just result because there's this problem, but that corporate indifference at the highest level of the pool industry existed. And we tried that case, uh, resulted in a $100 million verdict against a company at the time known as Playwright. They've since been bought out uh, by another company called Pentair. And after that verdict, I literally chased the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, around the country. I testified in over six hearings telling them that you have a problem and it can easily be fixed. The pool industry knows about it. I have the internal documents. They know that if you simply put a suction vacuum relief device, a sensor, on every pool pump, this will never happen again. It'll sense that someone is stuck. And they fought us. Uh, they uh -huh. lied. They lobbied. They lied continually. And it continued to happen. So I ended up having four more cases, all death cases, which made me sick to my stomach because oh I knew what was going wrong. And I was on public record. I mean, the CPSC could not stand me, the pool industry. I mean, it was a war. And then what happened, tragically and awfully, is Secretary of State James Baker's granddaughter, uh, Grammy Baker, was six years old, and she was killed in a jacuzzi in Alexandria, Virginia. Same pump, same company, 20 people at the party trying to pull her off the drain, and she's killed. The firm handling that case in Virginia brought me in because of my expertise in the subject. But now we had a political player. Right. And the Baker family through not only the secretary, but Grammy's mother, Nancy, uh, was an absolute warrior. They were not going to allow this to happen to another kid. And, uh, and because it happened to Lorenzo, it happened to you know, all these different people. And we were able to pass a bill in Congress, a bipartisan bill that was signed by George W. Bush, President Bush, that has prevented suction entrapment from happening in the United States for over 10 years. And it's awful that this, all these tragedies had to happen. But at the same time, it's truthfully one of my proudest moments that this has not happened again, because I believe that's what the civil justice system is for. I believe it's for eradicating this behavior. I, I tell people, I hope to put myself out of business. I mm, hope yeah. to make the world so much safer that you don't need me because there won't be these tragedies. And I always think of Lorenzo, you know, he had passed away 
um, after our verdict that but for his case, you know, and the others, this never gets done. And um, and right now that bill is being reauthorized in Congress. And so I'm involved in the fight. You know, we've got bipartisan support. We're hoping that we can expand it and provide swimming lessons and other to prevent other types of drownings. But we have, knock on wood, eradicated suction entrapment, uh, which was a hard battle, I can tell you. Like you said, it was an easy fix. But why such the battle? I mean, knowing that there's going to be additional suits that come come up because of this. Well, and the reason was, I mean, it's just, it's typical whether we we can do a movie about it tomorrow. It's it's Mm -hmm. the memo that says there are three and a half million single drain pools out there. And we would have to retrofit our pumps and it would cost us X. I mean, we had that memo. I was showing patents. I mean, I couldn't tell you how to research a patent before that case. We had patents from a hundred years before showing the technology. I mean, we, we, you know, we have all these different, I mean, there were, there are water pump systems you can imagine to right. run cities that have this technology because if something gets stuck, you can't pump water in or out. That's a catastrophe for a city. You certainly could do that on a little pool. And uh, so we were showing the patents. I mean, you know, that's, that's why the jury, I think, was so incensed. But, you know, they had settled cases. They kept, you know, they had done what corporations do, unfortunately. They were playing the, the accounting game. You know, like you said, we've all done that, right? We've all dove down to the drain growing up. But who would have known? No. You know, I, I still to this, well, I guess today's a little different because thank God it hasn't happened. Yeah. But even back then, I would tell people and they'd be like, oh, my God, I didn't know that had happened. And then, you know, when we did our research, there was a 60-minute right. session on it. Oprah Winfrey had had a show on it. I mean, there there had been publicity but it's not easy to reach 300 million Americans. I mean, you know, right. it's, you know, if you could do that, you'd have the secret sauce. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Wow. So one person can make a difference. I mean, like you, you know, you kept at it. Yeah. And it's certainly not one person. I mean, I, I can. No, I know. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There was a giant team, but it was something I, w- I was not going to let go. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, my wife would say, where, where are you going today? And I'm like, well, I'm going to St. Louis. Why? CPSC has an open hearing. I'm going to go testify against it. Never invited. I mean, they, they, they tried to make sure I wasn't invited. And, and uh, you know, and I remind them to this day, I speak every year at the National Drowning Prevention Alliance. I was on their board. There are folks from that time that are still involved in the space and still involved in the pool industry. And I, I remind them, I, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not vengeful, but what you do matters. And when you lobby for an industry like that and you, and you spread falsehoods, I mean, that, that's a problem. I mean, people, kids die. I mean, there's just no right. bloods on people's hands, and I don't take that lightly. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, when it comes to children. Yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely. Um, let's do, uh, can you tell tell us about a case that left in a, a lasting impression, and it may be one of these cases that you're talking about, where you provided justice and comfort to the victim's family? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I guess we've talked about two of those cases. I'll talk about the third, and that, and that involved uh, Lauren Hinton was uh, just under three years old. Um, again, on a, on a on a beautiful South Florida day, her dad was cooking out in an apartment complex. She was playing hide and go seek with her brother and some friends in the common areas of a, of an apartment complex, and um, her dad 
took up the food to their apartment and some neighbors were kind of watching the kids. And she went through a broken pool gate of the apartment comments had been broken, didn't self-close, didn't self-latch, went to a little, a little ladder, a kiddie ladder that was in the pool, fell in the pool and uh, was um, terribly brain damaged. She was underwater for probably 12 minutes, saved by a bystander. And, you know, the, the apartment complex, and more importantly, their insurance company had the opportunity to pay a million dollars, which was their insurance policy, and did not. And fought the case, totally blaming the parents. And we tried that case knowing a couple of things. One, they were going to blame the parents and be awful for the parents. A very difficult case because the parent, the dad mm-hmm. did leave it down in that area. And then maybe most importantly, there was only a million dollars insurance. So we would have to win what we call a bad faith case once we hopefully won the underlying case. Right. And we were able, again, to get over a $100 million verdict, only 1% comparatively negligent on the dad. And then we were able to win the bad faith case. And that case is so important for a couple of reasons. Number one, which is that case now, uh, it happened 20 years ago. And Lord is still alive. Uh, she's 23 years old. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Whenever I go to Atlanta, I stop in to see her and her mom, Lori. Um, you know, she needs 24 hour care. She still can't talk. She eats through a G tube. I'm, I'm utterly convinced she remembers me and she knows who I am and, and, uh, everything, but the amount of comfort and care we were able to give Lori, mm-hmm. uh, and Lauren over those years is, is something that makes it meaningful to be a trial lawyer, but also, You know, we've had so many of those cases since that we're still in that battle for pool fencing, for pool gates, for codes to be enforced across the country. I've handled drowning cases now in probably 25 states, uh, from Minneapolis to California to Virginia to, to really everywhere. We have one in New York right now. We have one in Las Vegas. And the problem with all that is that the codes aren't being enforced. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a simple fix. I mean, you're still going to have some type of drownings, but pools that really shouldn't happen with kids like that because you can you can baby-proof, kid-proof pools with fencing and gates. And Lori's the first one that will get on with the client or mm-hmm. more like get on with a, with a legislator and talk about how this is so important. And had that gate been inspected, Lauren wouldn't be in that place, nor would some of our cases today. Right. Right. Um, so how do you manage your legal career alongside your philanthropic uh, work in organizations like the National Drowning Prevention Alliance and the National Crime Victim Bar Association? I've got a good team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you. I, I talked about earlier how when I started, I was out there in the street every day. I was investigating. Mm-hmm. I'm taking thousand depots a day, doing all those kind of things. And uh, and I love that. You know, I'm here in Jacksonville today, and I'll pro- I'm going to go by a couple of scenes of this terrible Dollar General mass shooting that happened here that we're that we're leading up uh, the case. I love doing that, but you can't do that every day. Mm-hmm. And go talk to legislators and go work on these different issues, whether it's drowning or whether it's gun violence issues. So you got to have a great team, and I I have phenomenal partners: um, Doug McCarran, Todd Michaels, Pedro Charte. Um, who are great trial lawyers, um, care about their clients, care about all the issues we've discussed. And we have great associates. Um, we have two, you know, uh, senior associates, partners, and Adam Finkel and Kim Wald, who are just phenomenal. I mean, I couldn't ask for better better lawyers right. 
And then we have two young guns who, uh, you know, are working 15 hours a day and, and doing what you got to do. I mean, well, right. I always tell everybody, if you do this, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It is not for the faint of heart if you want to do it right, because your family is going to have to know the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to really understand it. Both my kids are in college right now, and I will tell you, they understand how important it is that daddy fights against the bad guys before the good guys. I mean, they will tell you that. They've known my clients. Um, they've been to events for March for Your Lives. They've been to, uh, they've been with the Parkland families um, because they're, they're that age. Right. I mean, they're in that fight with us, you know? Um, and so you got to have a great team to fight the bigger fight. And I, to me, I wouldn't want to be a regular, I hate to say this, man. Yeah. There's a, a fit for everybody, but I couldn't just be a volume lawyer that's just you know i mean to me it's got to be about more and i think that's what's great about my team is they all understand that right so you mentioned your kids so either one of them following in your footsteps yeah so my daughter is a senior um at tulane university and she's she wants to be a physician's assistant so i've lost her to medicine but she's uh she's gonna do great there she's gonna save lives my son actually he plays football at tulane so he's a uh He's a redshirt freshman quarterback there. I still have, I still have hope that once his football career is done, he might he might come over to the law or business may steal him. But uh, right. what's but, he know, majoring in? What's he uh, majoring in? Business right now. Okay. All right. But you know, we need allies. Look, I mean, I I yeah. think, I um it's funny, I, I work with a number of corporations on gun violence safety because I, I talk to hotels and you know all these different business owners that if Washington doesn't change our gun laws. Mm-hmm. Well, then you're on the front line. Right. I mean, I, we have cases against Walmart, but I, I talk to folks at Walmart all the time in their corporate office about there's no place in the world that's had more mass shootings at Walmart. And and some may be their responsibility, but I can tell you this, if the AR-15 wasn't available, Walmart would be a lot safer. Right. And that, that's only got so much to do with Walmart. And so they, they've actually been a you know, I would say a good corporate citizen in that, you know, they don't sell uh, assault weapons. They don't mm-hmm. sell a high capacity magazine. They, they have a lot of incentive. They do sell obviously guns, but they, if everyone did it the way they did, and, and that was the, the law in the country, I think we'd be a lot safer. Right. Wow. So can you uh, discuss your involvement with the uh, uh, Polycystic Kidney Foundation and the personal connection that you have to the cause? Sure. Uh, polycystic kidney disease is a disease where your it's a genetic disease where your um, kidneys uh, develop cysts and then obviously fail over time. And uh, so that's a disease that runs in my family. My maternal grandmother uh, had it. I never had the opportunity to meet her. Uh, my uncle had it. Uh, my uncle was transplanted, passed away after that. Um, and then my mom had it and she passed away and, and uh, uh, never was transplanted. So I found out in my early 30s, I had some back pain and I uh, really bad back pain. Went to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I, I go to a neurologist, get an MRI, actually a doctor that, that I had against me in cases. And he treated some of my clients and he came out and he said, well, you got a herniated disc, you know, you're 30 yeah. years old, no big deal. He's like, um, but do you have any kidney disease in your family? And I was, you know, I, I was like, oh my God. So I was diagnosed in my early 30s. And so, you know, lived with it, but got immediately involved in the PKD Foundation. And the PKD Foundation raises money, uh, most of all for research. 
and then also for advocacy uh, for uh, patients around the world. And so I, uh, it's going to be seven years ago Friday, uh, was transplanted. And my um, my wife's brother, uh, who was a Blackhawk pilot at the time, active Blackhawk pilot in the United States Army, uh, was my donor. And so, you know, I, I'm incredibly fortunate. I'm doing great. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there that aren't. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I, um, have we have an event every year. It's coming up in November called Kidney Casino for a Cure. And we've been able to raise, you know, over the years, uh, well over a million dollars for the foundation. Uh, we obviously give a lot. It's our, our number one effort. And it's something that can be eradicated. What's interesting about it is the curse of the disease is that's genetic. You know, mm-hmm. so my children have a chance of, of getting it. Right. Um, the blessing of the disease is genetic. So right. we know the gene. Uh, we already have one drug that treats it. Uh, it was too late for me in the process. Uh, but 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 a lot of folks are on that drug. It's doing great. And we have a lot of drugs in the pipeline. And so it's uh, obviously a credible issue mm-hmm. that's uh, you know close to my heart. And And I will tell you, I mean, not only my law firm, but but the plaintiff's bar, which I was president of the state trial lawyers in Florida about uh, now 14 years ago, they're the number one givers to the um, uh, to our foundation. I mean, <laughs> the PKD Foundation will call me and they'll mention people's names. They'll be like, "Does this person have the disease?" I go, "No, it's just a friend of mine." Well, why? Right. I'm like, "Well, I have good friends." So, <laughs> so, so yes, um, yeah, we're going to get a cure. I mean, we're going to get a. Uh, a drug that's going to do that. And, and kidney transplant is so important because unfortunately folks of all kidney diseases, the first thing they think about is dialysis. And sure. all they're told is dialysis right. mm-hmm. or go on the list. Right. The list, you're gonna, you know, there's a hundred thousand people on the list and people don't understand how easy it is to get a living donor. And all it is is a blood match. And, and so that's something that my wife and I really advocate for. We, we've been fortunate that we've convinced about, five people to, to be living donors. And uh, I always tell people it's the quickest way to heaven. I mean, it is a automatic ticket. You save a life, you're on God's short list. So, right. Um, right. so yeah, very important. Wow. Um, what are your future goals in both legal um, career and your philanthropic pursuits? Wow, that's a good, that's a good question. Right. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I love our firm and I want our firm to be able to keep not only doing a great job for our clients, um, but doing the different things that we're doing in society. And, and you know, so I, um, I I love what I do. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I wish I had other hobbies, you know, so every weekend wasn't, you know, doing a bunch of calls, everything like that. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that will come. But, you know, I I love the place that we're in. Uh, unfortunately, as you and I talked about in the beginning, there's a lot you know, corporations want to stamp us out. Mm-hmm. Not only in Washington, but in Florida and other states. And, you know, I really believe that's the obligation of every trial lawyer, uh, that if you have the privilege to go into a courtroom in front of a jury and represent a client, then you have the obligation to fight for that client's rights in the halls of, of the legislature, uh, whether it's your state legislature or whether it's Congress, because you don't have one without the other. And, right. uh, and the problem is, is that, you know, congressmen and legislators, they get in the tort reform battle when it doesn't involve them. But I can tell you, when this happens to their family, they're the first one, rightfully so, right. Right. Rightfully so to want to bring a case. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I had those conversations with the Baker family. You know, I said, look, I said, George Bush is a huge tort reformer in Texas. 
You know, we've got to educate folks about the Seventh Amendment, which is, you know, obviously the Bill of Rights, the right to trial by jury. You know, and then on, on the other efforts, I mean, you know, obviously PKD and getting a cure to PKD and, and making transplants so available mm-hmm. for people is something that we work on all the time. But this gun violence problem in the United States of America is something that haunts me. And I'll tell you a, a personal, also a legal story is, you know, I probably represented more gun violence victims than our firm has than any lawyer in the country. And that's awful, number one. Number two, you know, you sit there and you get incredibly close to your clients. You get involved. We're very involved in Brady. We're very involved for March for Your Lives, all our clients' foundations. And then last year, I wake up one morning and I have two calls from the mother of a, um, a young man who played football with my son in high school. And these are calls at 4 and 4.30 in the morning. I represented wow. a brother in a significant case, so I'm I'm not thinking anything. And I turn on the TV and I see that there's been a shooting at the University of Virginia and three football players were uh, killed. And now my heart sinks because Deshaun Perry, who played with my son, played football at the University of Virginia and he was killed. And I, I never had it happen to uh, someone that I coached, someone Mm -hmm. that I knew and it, it ripped my heart out. Um, and my client's story has ripped my heart out, but it, I always tell my clients, one of the shames is I never knew them before. I right. never knew who they yeah. were. You know, never knew who your son was. Your Well, I, I can tell you now, that's actually a good thing to protect you as a trial lawyer. Because that's a case that I'm working on right now that is incredibly difficult for me to work on. Right, and you're Kim, so close to it. Yeah, and Kim Wald in my office um, knows that. Uh, she's literally like my therapist on the case. Um and I can tell you what's amazing about that is one of the people I've reached out to to talk to about that is Manny Oliver, who is one of the Parkland survivors who lost his son, Joaquin. And he regularly, he and I presented in Boston at a conference recently, and he's like the person I could talk to about it mm. because he's been through it. And it's, it's something that cannot happen. you know. And I try to tell everybody that because that, the arguments on this debate make no sense. It's like this is coming to your doorstep. Yes. Gun violence is like cancer. Everyone knows somebody in their family or their that has been victimized by cancer. Gun violence is going to be no different. It's the number one killer Mm -hmm. of people under 18 in the United States of America, above disease, above automobiles for the first time ever. And there were 300 million guns in the United States prior to the pandemic. And there's 420 million now. And it's not slowing down. And I'm not saying you got to take everybody's gun. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is we need sensible gun laws like every other country in the world has. And some states in the United States do. And the bottom line is they work. This is a uniquely American problem. There is no place on earth that this happens at the prevalency, not even close to the United States. We can hunt. We can protect our home. We can do all the things that, that we want to do without AR-15s, without people don't don't need guns. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's something it's in some ways, I think, a maybe an impossible goal, but but we've got to do it because if we if we don't, I mean, the fact that our kids go through like our parents did 
you know, when you go through the bomb drills and you go down to your basement back in the 1950s. It's what our kids do at school for mass shooting drills. It's outrageous. It's unex- We're the United States of America. So that is something that I'll be working on till, till there's a solution or I'm no longer with us. Right. Is there anything else, uh, Michael, before we kind of close this up? Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners that you haven't shared already or want uh, listeners to know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you brought up a good point when you said, you know, that, that you can make a difference. You know, I think... Um, I've talked about a lot of problems that we have out there, but, you know, there, there are solutions. And, and one of the solutions is all talking together and right. trying to work together on different things. So I, I just always encourage people, you know, have an open mind, talk, because no one wants gun violence to happen. I mean, I don't care what side. Nobody does. Right. No one does. So so we got to find a way to, you know, I always tell people, look, I'll try your solution for two years. And then try mine and maybe we try them together. And let's just let's stop this because uh, we've got to get back to a society that, that discusses these things uh, and, and comes to solutions. And so, and I think as a lawyer, you can have a very, very big impact on that. So that's sure. something that I enjoy. And I tell you, lawyers, it's something you should achieve to do because you'll have a much more fulfilling career if you're involved in those kind of things. Yeah. How do our listeners uh, get a hold of you or learn about you and the Haggard Law Firm? Yeah, so our website is uh, uh, haggardlawfirm.com, and my email is mah uh, haggardlawfirm, H-A-G-G-A-R-D, lawfirm.com, and uh, get in touch with us anytime and and uh, on, on any issue, you know, not only a case, but maybe an issue that, that from an advocacy standpoint that we can maybe help out with. Right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, it's been great to learn about you and your law firm and <clears throat> your endeavors that you you do personally and professionally um, to give back to your community and, um, you know, to try to help families put some pieces back together, even though, you know, you, it's never going to go back the way it was, but at least you can give them hope, you know, because a lot of your victims, it takes a lot of money to care for them. You know, just like you said, uh, the three-year-old, 20 years. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a lot of money for that type of care. And had had they not had you, you know, there's always the default, and it's not the best default, you know, and that. So um this has been Michael Clannon with Case Closed Podcast. My uh guest today was Michael Haggard from the Haggard Law Firm, right outside of Miami. Uh it was Coral, what was that, Michael Coral Springs? Oh, Coral Gables. Thank you. (laughs) So thank you for being our guest. So today, uh, Michael, and for our listeners, uh, be on the lookout for our next case closed podcast. um, Once again, so thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. 
Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 